Good morning. I uh, have been riveted to the television set and uh, during commercials reading the uh, newspaper for the last uh, 24 to 36 hours. I have to confess that I am a political buff and this is the first time in 22 years that we as a nation have had an opportunity to think through the life of a uh, past president. Uh, as I'm sure we're all aware, Richard Milhouse Nixon uh, died on uh, Friday evening. And uh, I've been fascinated by the stories that I've read in the newspaper and by the television shows the specials that I've seen uh, by the um, the variety of ways that his life is looked back upon. Uh, he's described by some as having the greatest foreign policy mind of this century, credited with uh, such things as uh, crafting the uh, first uh, nuclear arms treaty, the SALT treaty with uh, the Soviet Union. He's credited with... Uh, opening trade relations with uh, the People's Republic of China, drawing the Vietnam War to a close. A number of uh, significant accomplishments that he's remembered for. But in the midst of all of those memories stands uh, one memory uh, by the name of Watergate that uh, I suspect for a long time will be uh, and perhaps forever associated with his presidency. They say that some men are larger in death than they were in life, and only time will tell if that uh, is true of uh, Richard Nixon. Only time will tell if his accomplishments will outlive or at least overshadow his failures. And uh, I suspect only time will tell how well our national leaders have learned from his mistakes. Uh, we want to look this morning at the death of another national leader, uh, the uh, king of uh, Israel, the first king of Israel, King Saul. And as we come to look at, uh, at Saul's death and reflect back on his life, uh, I would like to uh, view this as well as an opportunity for us to learn from a man's mistakes. Would you uh, open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 31? We'll begin reading in verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the Israelites fled before them, and many fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons Jonathan, Abinadab, and Milkashua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. And when the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. And so Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men died together that day. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled. And the Philistines came 
and occupied them. This was uh, Saul's final battle, a battle that uh, went very badly for Israel. The narrative here suggests that the front uh, line regiments were routed early in the campaign. Uh, Saul's sons, uh, likely serving as uh, battle or battalion commanders, were taken out, representing a, a great loss to Saul personally, as well as, as military shock for the, uh, for the army. In fact, the Philistine strength became so overwhelming that the archers, who generally fired rather ineffectively from behind the front lines, were able to get close enough to uh, critically wound the king. And wounded, uh, and anticipating certain death, Saul asked the armor bearer, his armor bearer, to finish him off. You see, Saul knew that his capture would lead to ridicule in enemy cities, torture, and perhaps dismemberment, as had been the case uh, with Samson, who had fell to the Philistine hands just a few uh, years prior to this. Saul didn't want the same thing to happen to him. He didn't want uh, to grant the enemy that, uh, that pleasure. And so he turned to his armor bearer and, and begged him to, uh, to finish him off. And yet his uh, armor bearer, uh, a uh, well-trained armor bearer, realized that it was his responsibility to keep the king alive at all costs, and so he refused to, uh, uh, to consent to Saul's request. Uh, Saul fell on his own sword, preferring to take his own life rather than to suffer the public humiliation that would be associated with being found by the uh, Philistines and taken back to their, their city. And so here we have the king, along with most of the royal family, dead. Israel's mighty military machine defeated. And the hearts of the people, according to verse 7, in the nearby villages were struck with terror. The nation was rocked and whole cities began to run in fear of the Philistines. It was as if the heart of the nation had been ripped out from within them. But that wasn't enough for the Philistines They wanted to uh, take it one step further. They wanted to rub salt into Israel's emotional wounds. Look at verses 8 through 10. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his armor. And they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. And they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and fashioned his body to the wall of Bethshan. You see, defeat of Saul and his army was a great military triumph for Philistia. But that wasn't enough. More than that, the Philistine commanders saw this victory as a vindication of their gods over Israel's God. And therefore, they cut off Saul's head and they stripped him of his weapons and they displayed them throughout the land for all to see, to proclaim the news, as it says in verse 9, to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among the people that their God was more powerful than Israel's God. 
And his armor was displayed in the temple of the Ashtoreths, and his body, along with the bodies of his sons, were fastened to the wall in the public square in Beth Shan. You see, for 40 years, the Philistines had tried to defeat Saul and Israel's army, and yet they were unable. But for 40 years, they tried to do Saul in, and finally, they were able to pull it off. And you see, they were not about to let this victory go unnoticed or uncelebrated by their own people, let alone Israel. They intended, intended to gloat over and flaunt this triumph. They intended to use this victory to every advantage possible, to publicly ridicule and demean and degrade Israel. They nailed the bodies to the, uh, the public square. Uh, this was the Philistine equivalent to our great American expression, na 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 You see... They said, here, it's in your face. And had it not been for the courage of a few brave men from Gabish Gilead, the Philistine plan probably would have worked. Look at verses 11 and following. When the people of Jabesh Gilead heard of what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men journeyed through the night to Beth Shan. And they took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Beth Shan, and went to Gabish, where they burned them. Then they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at, at Jabish. And then they fasted for seven days. Now these brave warriors from Jabesh Gilead were the descendants of those uh, rescued from uh, Ammonite siege some 40 years earlier by Saul. You see, they hadn't forgotten the king's loyalty to them. And so they were compelled out of their own loyalty to, to Saul to risk their lives by making this 13-mile journey by night to, to try to quietly steal away the bodies and to bring them back for a, uh, a worthy uh, funeral. These men saw in Saul, even after he was dead, a leader who was worthy to die for. And I suspect in addition to that, they saw this as, as somewhat of an opportunity to demonstrate in some small, defiant way that not all Israel had capitulated. The Philistine victory had been great, but it hadn't been complete. It was merely partial. Well, in fact, uh, many, including David, who heard about Saul's death some three days later, were outraged to hear of the Philistines' treatment of Saul and his sons. And in 2 Samuel chapter 1, David uh, orders the execution of one who falsely claims responsibility for putting the king out of his misery. David asks the question of this man in verse 14, Why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Emphasis on the Lord's anointed. You see, for all of Saul's manipulative scheming and paranoia and mental instability, David still regarded him as the Lord's anointed, and he still respected him for the position that he occupied. In fact, for all his manipulative scheming and paranoia and mental instability, the nation still regarded him as an effective leader. 
and an effective warrior and defender of Israel's freedom, particularly against the Philistines. For 40 years, he had gotten the job done, and Israel loved him and appreciated him for that. And therefore, they gladly took up the lament psalm that David wrote of Saul and his sons, beginning in verse 19 of chapter 1. Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. O mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain nor fields that yield offerings of grain. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and gracious, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Now this seems to be a most unusual lament or eulogy for David to write about the one who had dogged him for so many years, isn't it? I mean, how can he speak so complimentary of of, uh, Saul, the one who attempted on several occasions to take his life? Is he serious? Does he really mean this? Well, I think so. You see, though David disapproved of Saul's personal vendetta against him and likely had very little respect for Saul's integrity, he recognized Saul as God's anointed. And he recognized Saul's military giftedness, which had resulted in Israel's prosperity under his leadership. Look at verse 24 again. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. You see, in every other way, other than spiritually speaking, Israel benefited from Saul's reign. Both domestically and in foreign affairs, Saul proved himself worthy of the nation's respect. And thusly, he's remembered. David, the one who ran from Saul for so many years, writes of him in verse 19, Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. The image uh, that's evoked in me is the image of a state funeral. I picture uh, those three dark days in our nation's history when we all sat riveted to the television screen watching uh, the, uh, the funeral of John Fitzgerald Kennedy, the horse-drawn carriage that, that took his casket down Pennsylvania Avenue en route to Arlington National Cemetery. I picture a respectful state funeral for this leader of Israel as I read David's words, Your glory, O Israel, 
lie slain on your heights, how the mighty have fallen. Words of respect. But were they worthy of him? I'd like to suggest that we take another look at Saul's life and leadership at the risk of, at least for a moment, dishonoring his memory that's offered in this lament. I'd like to consider again the character of this man who led Israel for some 40 years. The story begins in 1 Samuel 9. If you'd like to turn back there. In 1 Samuel 9... Saul finds himself looking for his father's uh, flocks and herds that had had been lost and stumbling upon this middle-aged prophet slash priest by the name of Samuel. And as Samuel sees Saul, the Lord speaks to him in verse 17. This is the man that I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. To which Samuel says to Saul, And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and to all your father's family? Samuel casts the mantle of God's leadership on Saul's shoulders at this point. And Saul was beside himself. He was incredulous. The Lord can't be thinking of me. Who am I? Look at verse 21. But am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? We would say, no way, Jose. This is impossible. God, you've got to have someone better equipped in mind than me. You see, Saul begins with with a healthy and genuine dose of humility because of his sense of inadequacy for the task that he'd been called to. In fact, when he's introduced to the nation in chapter 10, verse 20, Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. And then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was chosen. And finally, Saul, son of Kish, was chosen. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, has, has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yeah, but he's, he's hiding among the baggage. You see, Saul began with a very keen sense of his own inadequacy, feeling very ill-equipped. He was overcome by the reality of his own unworthiness and his insufficiency for the job that he'd been called to do. Now, what he didn't realize at that point in his life is that that was right where God wanted him. Not among the baggage, but feeling inadequate. See, that's right where God wants us as well. Dependent and helplessly in need of him. Have you been there recently? Have you found yourself... uh, thrust into a position in which you feel utterly helpless and weak and inadequate and ill-equipped in over your head? I have. 
And and where do we go with with the fear that those circumstances create for us? What are we to do with such feelings? Well, like Saul, we have two choices. Two paths that we can pick from. First, we can either pretend to be sufficient in ourselves and rely on ourselves. Or secondly, we can confess our neediness and depend on God. Those are the two choices that we always have in front of us. To pretend that we have what it takes and then depend on our own resources. Or to acknowledge our weakness and our inadequacy and to say, God, I can't do it, but I'll depend on you. Well, Saul chose the self-life, as has been illustrated in the stories that we've read of him these past several months. In 1 Samuel 13, Saul found himself in conflict with the Philistines. It was one of his early battles. And his army found its back against the wall, and Saul panicked. His men were losing courage and their fear of the enemy was on the rise, and Saul grew impatient. Impatient to see the starch stiffen in their spines. Patient to wait for Samuel to arrive to offer the prescribed sacrifice that would rouse the the nation's courage. And so he took matters into his own hands. Against Levitical law, Saul took on the the role of a priest, and offered a sacrifice. You see, his fear led him to take charge, to depend on his own resources rather than God. He wanted to rally the troops. He didn't want to look bad. He didn't want to jeopardize victory or his own reputation. But the result was that he lost out. He didn't get to see God work. Had he waited, had told his men, let's be patient because we serve a living God who will act. And yes, our our circumstances are, are frightening right now. And I understand your fear. And I feel it myself. But I know that God will be faithful. Rather than saying that and seeing God work, he took matters into his own hands. He took the role of God. And consequently, his confidence in God was forever shaken. And we can so easily do the same thing, can't we? We find ourselves in tough circumstances, waiting for God to act. It's hard to be patient. We're tempted to think that God needs us. He needs us to act. He needs us to figure it out. He needs us to depend on our own resources and ingenuity and creative thinking. After all, God helps those who help themselves, right? Isn't that what we've been told? And so we want to act out. We want to take charge. But the result is that our confidence in God is shaken because we don't give Him the opportunity to be God for us. That was Saul's first mistake. His second mistake occurred in 1 Samuel 15, 
when he was asked by God to enact God's judgment against the Amalekites, to destroy them thoroughly, including cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. And yet Saul capitulated to the pressure of the people. He captured the king rather than put the king to the sword. And rather than than destroying all of the Amalekites' possessions, he brought many of them back with him, only to find himself confronted by Samuel and charged with, with disobedience and then creating this likely story that, uh, that they brought back the animals to, to sacrifice to the Lord. He tried to appease God by offering the spoils of their victory as sacrifice. And for this, he was rejected by God as Israel's king. He was told by Samuel that another would take his place. And rather than being broken by his sin... Rather than being moved to repentance, he was concerned with image. He was concerned with, it, with what others would think of him. And he replied to Samuel, Samuel, you're right, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Well, Samuel wouldn't do that, and God as he had promised through Samuel, picked a successor to the kingdom. David was chosen in 1 Samuel 16, and in chapter 17 through 28 of 1 Samuel, we have an incredible story of David coming into his own as Saul's uh, kingdom and, and uh, reputation is, is becoming uh, smaller and smaller. Throughout that history with David, Samuel or Saul rather demonstrates his commitment to live life on his own terms and in his own strength rather than in God's. He was jealous when David received more acclaim for military victories than he did. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Saul's anger seethed within him. And as it became apparent that that God had chosen David to be Israel's next king, the resentment grew to the point where Saul eventually tried numerous times to take David's life. But you see, had Saul truly been repentant and determined to pursue God's will rather than his own, he would have turned the kingdom over to David. David would have ruled in his place. And Saul and and Jonathan would have assisted him. They would have been honored by God and God's blessing would have rested upon Saul again. But Saul would have nothing to do with doing God's will. Saul's will was what mattered. And Saul's will was to hang on to the kingdom at all costs including the death of 85 innocent priests, reneging on uh, promises that he had made to David when David had spared his life, and finally, in the end, turning to the occult 
for answers and direction when God would no longer speak to him. See, like trying to hold water in bare hands, Saul tried in vain to cling to the kingdom that was slipping through his fingers. It didn't matter what God thought. It didn't matter what God wanted or what God said. Saul had his own agenda. Like Frank Sinatra, Saul's theme song was, I did it my way. Or maybe we could change that to, I blew it my way. And you see, in the end, the leader who began with so much promise, who stood a head taller than everyone else, was cut down to size, both by God and by a Philistine sword. Well, what, what are we to make of such a tragedy? What, what can we learn from this? You know, I, I read this and I, I think, boy, he sure blew it. He sure lost his way. He sure settled for less than God had intended for him. But what else can we learn? What can we say of this man? Well, whatever our response, we dare not say, that'll never happen to me. We dare not say, this can never happen to us. For you see, we all struggle with the same tendencies that Saul had. We're all inclined to trust in ourselves rather than, to, rather than in God when the going gets tough. There's a Saul in each of us. We all struggle with fear, with pride, anger, and jealousy. Those are the, the four sins that I see in Saul's life as, he, uh, as he's, uh, his story is unfolded in this book. We all struggle with those things. And they can all lead to, uh, to a dependence on self rather than on God. And I suppose that's what draws me to the story of a man like Saul. I suppose that's what draws me as well to a story of a man like Richard Nixon. I see so much of myself in both of them. I struggle in the same areas. Don't you? In fact, someone pointed out to me this past week that that there's very little difference between Saul's choices and David's choices in 1 Samuel. You see, we've talked about Saul's sins, but, but David doesn't come off looking all that good in 1 Samuel either. He was deceitful. He trusted in his own wisdom rather than in God's wisdom. He was inclined to wrongfully uh, uh, act out against people. He almost took Saul's life. He almost took Nabal's life. Their choices were very similar. But the difference was found in their eventual heart response to God. And such is the case for us as well. We find ourselves at the end of our ropes, not sure how to handle the circumstances that we're facing or the problems that are before us. And we too get to choose. And we get to choose every day whether to trust in self or whether to trust in God. 
We can all look back on past failures. Most of us can look at current struggles that we're having with our flesh. And we can choose. And you see, the Lord knows our weaknesses. He knows the difficulty that we have in trusting Him because He knows what we're made of. He knows our weaknesses and He knows our failures. He's familiar with our tendency to depend on Him as a last resort after we've exhausted every ounce of of our own human energy. And nevertheless, He stands waiting. Waiting for us to turn to Him. Waiting to forgive. You see, the Lord is very much unlike the American people. The Lord doesn't remember our sins. He offers forgiveness. He offers a cleansed conscience and a fresh start and courage and strength to face tomorrow. And it's available today. It's available every day because of what Jesus did for us on Calvary's cross. It's available because of Jesus' obedience to the Father to become sin for us. It was His choice to love us, not as we would become, but as Romans 5.8 says, as we are. To love us just as we are, sinners in need of His touch. We want to remember that today as we celebrate the Lord's table. We want to remember the sacrifice of His Son and to celebrate it because forgiveness is extended. Not only forgiveness for past sins, but forgiveness for present sins, forgiveness for future sins, forgiveness for that struggle that that you may be having today to trust in yourself rather than in God. Let's pray. Father, we are so undeserving of such love. And frankly, Lord, it's difficult at times for us to understand such love because it seems so foreign to us. We live in a world in which uh, the ledger reads uh, achievements and failures And oftentimes our failures far outnumber our achievements. We live in a world in which people look at that ledger and determine how they'll treat us and how they'll love us. And regrettably, Father, we look at that same ledger of our own lives and oftentimes determine how much we'll love ourselves based on that. And yet, Father, as we see from both David and Saul's life, Your love for us is not based on how well we perform, how well we can pull off this Christian life, but it's simply based on the worthiness of your Son who died for us, who became sin on our behalf that we might be released from sin's penalty and power. And so we glory in that today, Father, We focus not on what we're about or what we've done or what we're doing, but we focus on who you are 
and the, the love that you've lavished upon us because of what you've done. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.